0: Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, I don't know if you remember, but quite a while ago, we did an episode with somebody named Richard Rothstein.
1: I remember. I was there. (laughs)
0: Well, Richard Rothstein wrote an incredible book called The Color of Law. And as we interviewed him for that episode, he basically laid out for us the way that things like redlining basically clustered African-Americans into particular neighborhoods. And it really didn't matter what we wanted to know. He was there to tell us a particular story.
1: Uh, His point really was that Uh, the segregation that we see in American cities particularly, but nationwide is the product of very intentional policy and that the way to combat it is with equally intentional policy.
0: Well, I hope that listeners who haven't already heard that episode will go back and look for it. But in the meantime, we are moving on to the next iteration of the story.
1: Yeah, it's something that you and I have talked about recently, and that is uh, the sort of next wave of segregation that is happening in a kind of unique way in the sense that white people are moving back into city centers and these are, uh, you know, middle class and affluent white people and people of color and lower income people are moving out into the suburbs. And so there are some interesting changes afoot in terms of uh, school segregation and school integration.
0: Our inspiration for this episode is a story that ran in the New York Times back in April, part of their Upshot series, which is data-driven journalism. And What they did is they looked at census tracts around the country and they found something pretty startling. They found that in one out of six census tracts that are majority African-American, white homeowners were returning, white people were moving in, buying homes, and that with very few of these housing purchases, the texture of the neighborhoods would change and down to sort of, you know, like the color of the door. Suddenly the door of a home would be a jazzy, ironic lime green. Jack, do you have a jazzy, ironic lime green door?
1: Mine is blue, actually. uh, Sort of a neon blue that contrasts with our red home. And it's interesting that you say that because, you know, there is research in, uh, you know, housing policy that has looked into when neighborhoods tip in one direct direction or another uh, demographically. And there are particular signals that get sent to particular demographic groups that this is a neighborhood for people like them. Uh, you know, you're sort of joking about the door, but there are aspects of home design that signal to people, um, you know, this is a neighborhood for people like you. Uh, and uh, there is some really interesting work that shows that Uh, neighborhoods are really unstable in a lot of cases with regard to their demography. And so they can change very rapidly, particularly when they're subject to the free market and the prices of homes can fluctuate pretty rapidly.
0: Well, when I read that New York Times piece, I was seized by two questions. One, is this playing out in Boston, which is the city closest to where you and I are? And two, what does this phenomenon mean for schools? And so I turned to someone who is not About both topics, Yawu Miller is the senior editor of Boston's African American newspaper, The Bay State Banner, and he's been paying a lot of attention to who is and is not buying houses in Boston.
2: The majority of the buyers now in some parts of Roxbury and certainly in Jamaica Plain and in Chinatown, the majority of the buyers, home buyers, are white. Their incomes are, you know, often twice those of the people who currently live in Roxbury. Um, and the incomes of white home buyers, regardless of where they're buying, um, you know, whether whether it's a, 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 pre, a, a census tract that you know appears to be turning more white, um, regardless of where it is, their their incomes are higher. Um, so I mean, what what's happened is it's almost as if an, a, another economy has sort of been superimposed upon the economy that that you know currently exists in predominantly black and Latino neighborhoods in Boston.
0: What Yahoo and others noticed was that African Americans in Boston are buying houses, just not in Boston. As wealthier white residents have been moving in, black residents have been leaving the city and moving south, about 25 miles south to Brockton. One of them recently shared his story with WGBH.
2: It was just a wonderful, ideal place to live. There were parks for the kids, you know, there was green space. Unfortunately, when I started to look to purchase, we were talking in the stratosphere, six, seven $700,000 easily.
0: And that significant income gap that Yahoo describes between people moving into Boston and buying up houses and people who live in these neighborhoods reflects another divide, the city's staggering racial wealth gap.
2: The uh, Family wealth of a you know of a black family is eight dollars versus two hundred seventy thousand dollars for the average white family, and a lot of people say that's the result of years of uh, policies, housing policies, and you know people who there you know there's there's uh, a lot of wealth generated you know via the um, you know the benefits for veterans returning from wars that um, black people did not benefit from over decades.
0: We need to pause here for a quick geography lesson. Boston is a series of neighborhoods whose names actually have little to do with their geographic location. The South End is actually north of the center of the city. East Boston is actually the northernmost neighborhood, while South Boston, aka Southie, is actually the easternmost neighborhood. And while we think of the racial and ethnic identities of these neighborhoods as fixed, they aren't.
2: The black population in Boston has historically been small uh, up until the middle of the 20th century. It was like you know, ten uh, uh, it, it was less than ten percent. Um, and in the in the 1800s, um, you know when it was about two percent, most black people lived on Beacon Hill, which at that time was the inner city. Um, it's now one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Boston, you know, it's a very old neighborhood. Um, so when my great grandfather, uh, emigrated, uh, immigrated to the United States from Jamaica, um, you know, he came through New Bedford, he was a whaler. He got off the whaling ship in New Bedford and then made his way up to Boston
0: Iyawo grew up in a part of the city that's now seeing an influx of wealthier and whiter residents, a reverse of the white flight that shaped the neighborhood that he knew.
2: I grew up in um, Roxbury uh, uh, beginning in the late 1960s. And um, when I grew up, I had no knowledge that the neighborhood used to be Jewish or used to be white. And my father would tell me that and I, it just never clicked in my mind that like that was a possibility like you know like i mean he said it and it just seemed like you know the olden days like it was like some kind of something that you'd see in sepia tone photographs once in a while i'd run into like you know as i got older you run into a jewish person and say oh yeah i grew up in roxbury and they tell you exactly where um one thing that kind of made it real for me was like I sitting down with an uncle who went to Roxbury Memorial High when it was 50% Jewish and 50% black. And there were a couple a few other people, black and Jewish people in the room and they were sort of telling stories about what it was like at Roxbury Memorial High, you know, in that period in the late 50s early 60s and thought wow, like the neighborhood was really different because you could be in Roxbury when I was a kid and there were like a handful of Jewish families that stayed behind, but you could you could sort of hang out all day and not see a white person unless they were behind the wheel of a police cruiser, you know.
0: Roxbury is also exactly the kind of neighborhood that Richard Rothstein described in The Color of Law. When black residents of the South End couldn't get loans to fix up their properties and got forced out of their homes as a result, they ended up in Roxbury and a handful of other neighborhoods in the center of the city. And those are exactly the sorts of neighborhoods that are suddenly the places that wealthier, whiter homebuyers are now looking to live. While prices are going way up, they're still much lower than the most gentrified neighborhoods.
2: The neighborhoods um, that I described earlier where blacks and Latinos live in the highest concentrations um, are now the most valuable neighborhoods in, in or you know the most highly valued neighborhoods in Boston. There's proximity to downtown Boston, there's proximity to public transit, and the housing stock is is gorgeous. And uh, so the real estate values have gone through the roof. Um, When you look at neighborhoods that are changing, um, where the demographics are shifting, um, generally from people of color to white, it's that same central spine of the city. So uh, those neighborhoods could, um, you know, like within a decade, like change visibly. Um, And the, the one neighborhood that has grown, that has seen the, the sharpest increase in people of color is also the neighborhood that's farthest from downtown, Hyde Park, where you're really, it's almost like being in a suburb, um, not a lot of public transit, and, uh, but it, it, you know, it has become the most, uh, most diverse neighborhood in the city.
0: Jack, I want to bring you back in because as I mentioned at the start of the show, our interest in this question has an educational aspect, of course. We want to know what all of this is going to mean for urban schools, and I'm guessing that this is something that you've been thinking about.
1: Yeah, it's definitely something that I'm interested in as well because Uh, As some of our listeners know, I live in Somerville, which is, for all intents and purposes, a neighborhood of Boston, although it's an independent city. And Somerville has been gentrifying lately. And it's been really interesting to watch that play out in the schools as we have seen uh, the city gain greater potential for integrated schools in terms of a kind of shifting demography in the school district that would make the school district as a whole one of the most wildly diverse districts in America. Uh, And yet the way that is playing out in terms of enrollment at individual schools does not match what's going on in the district as a whole. This is true in lots of districts, and it'll be interesting to discuss how that's playing out in Boston.
0: So what does the arrival of white homeowners into majority non-white neighborhoods mean for schools in those neighborhoods? I put this question to Yawu, and he said that it's still too early to tell, but that in one neighborhood, East Boston, which went from being mostly Italian to overwhelmingly Latino, the changing population has meant a measurable drop in school-aged kids.
2: You're beginning to see school enrollment drop Which is to say that that um, the high school is getting a million dollar cut because the number of students there. We have a weighted student funding formula. Number of students there have dropped so has has dropped so precipitously that you know it's forcing this you know million dollar cut, and it's not the only school in East Boston. That's facing that problem. What you do see is, as they're putting up new housing in East Boston, they're putting up studio apartments for three thousand dollars a month and one bedrooms, two bedrooms. But the the um, who's living there now? It's currently like two point six people per family, and they're designing for more for like one point five people for family, per family per family. So. That um, you know, you're seeing, you're like people think we're seeing, beginning to see, um, you know, gentrification having an impact in East Boston, and it's largely a renting, um, a renting population, so that you know. As we begin to see gentrification happen in East Boston, it could be a little bit more like Williamsburg than like in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, where things kind of changed overnight. Than what you're what you've traditionally seen in Boston, where it takes like years for you know older homeowners to you know to sort of move into assisted housing and then young people buy their homes. In East Boston, it's just sort of like it seems like it's happening a lot quicker. But you know, it's it's a little bit early to call it.
0: So, Jack, that New York Times article that inspired this episode actually talked a lot about how architecture is a powerful indicator that a neighborhood is transforming. I joked earlier about the lime green door. Well, in East Boston, which we just heard Yahoo talking about, multi family homes, what we refer to in New England as triple deckers, are being replaced by luxury condos. And suddenly the whole neighborhood feels like the lobby of a faux mid century hotel. Not a only is the new housing way more expensive than what is replacing it, but it's also being built for fewer people. It's for couples without kids or for single people. And Jack, you and I have talked before about how this is a thing that is beginning to play out in all kinds of cities and something that has major implications for the education wars.
1: I think the main reason that that is interesting is that schools will be increasingly in competition with each other for a limited number of students and the per-pupil dollars that are attached to them. Uh, you know, This could mean a uh, rising number of school closures, uh, and it could mean that uh, particular schools end up with the lion's share of the resources.
0: One of the major questions about the reverse white flight that we're now seeing in cities like Boston is whether these new residents are going to send their kids to public schools. I put this question to Yahoo, and his answer surprised me.
2: The white people who move into a black neighborhood first are the ones who are most comfortable, who would tend to be most comfortable sending their children to a school that's predominantly black because they're moving into a neighborhood that's predominantly black. So they would tend not to have, like, um, not to not to be as concerned, um, wh- what we noticed in the south end is that you know people you once people sort of once they had children, they would often move out. Now they're staying, but that hasn't happened yet in any large numbers in other neighborhoods. and also the number of white people with children in the south end, it's not quite as high as the number of people of color with children. It's still like forty percent people of color because remember like, these neighborhoods, these inner-city neighborhoods, have for a long time had high percentages of of, uh, of affordable housing, permanently affordable housing uh, developments. So the South End, uh, you know, there there are housing developments that are predominantly Black, predominantly Chinese, predominantly Latino, and they still make up a large portion of the school population in those neighborhoods. Um, there are desirable schools in those neighborhoods that that are mixed. Or, or predominantly white, and then there are sort of like less desirable schools that are predominantly people of color that are struggling. I mean, you've got some of the greatest wealth disparities in Boston are in the South End, where you know there are million dollar, uh, you know, multi million dollar townhouses, and then you know housing projects where people are on fixed incomes.
0: Jack, I'm curious to get your take on that. We have white residents moving into non-white neighborhoods where the schools are also predominantly non-white. So we know from research that white parents will go to great lengths to avoid sending their kids to majority non-white schools. But I think Yahoo's point is that these transplants may be viewing these neighborhoods and potentially their schools differently.
1: That's true. And at the same time, it's important to recognize the fact that their presence in a neighborhood then changes the nature of the neighborhood and signals something different to people who may not feel the same way that they feel. So I'm thinking, for instance, about uh, a family that may not have the same level of comfort in sending their children to a majority non white school, but who may feel differently when they see that for the last couple years, uh, the kindergarten class in a particular school has become whiter and whiter, um, they then would be attracted to that demographic change. And you would actually see that change begin to be exacerbated where you would see incoming kindergarten classes growing whiter and whiter, which at the same time as it's attracting particular kinds of people might be driving other kinds of people away from the school. And as a result, rather than seeing a kind of interesting demographic shift that just brings in uh, one more kind of group to a school. It could actually mean that a school tips toward uh, a group that had previously been a minority and that you end up uh, basically displacing the population that had been there before. So it's really important, I think, to be watching Uh, For trends and to be thinking about the kinds of policies that can promote school integration, taking advantage of some of these trends that are occurring um, while also being aware of the fact that they won't necessarily play out in uh, integratory fashion.
0: Well, one of the trends that Yahoo has been keeping a close eye on is the inequitable distribution of advantage across the city. And the neighborhoods that were early to gentrify offer up some cautionary lessons.
2: Right, so the North End, uh, uh, which was traditionally an Italian-American neighborhood, um, and it's heavily yuppified. The Elliott School is one of the more desirable schools. And, you know, in addition to, um, you know, it's seen as a pipeline straight into the exam schools. It's kind of taken as a given that you know your kids at the Elliott, they're going to go to an exam school. And um, they also fundraise the hell out of that school so that in, in addition to the allotment they get from the central office, um, they're able to have art and music and all these other extracurricular programs that the um the well healed uh, parents just kind of pull out their checkbooks and donate to. Um, so that's you know some parent activists has kind of track that across the city to see which schools have like the greatest amount of giving, and which schools have the least. and it's not at all surprising. It kind of follows like you know the income. Uh, segregation that we're seeing in Boston, and you know, it's really where the segregation in Boston is most stark is by income. You don't notice like you, you know, like we'll, we'll notice um, gentrification happening in neighbors like the South End and Roxbury because the the color changes, but in this in South Boston, which has undergone profound changes and huge. Uh, increases in property values. You know, Irish working class people have just been sort of displaced by wealthier white people.
0: That was Yawu Miller. He's the senior editor of the Bay State Banner, an independent newspaper that has been covering Boston's African-American community since 1965. And I should mention that Yawu was also a big fan of the show. He listens to it with his mother and his son, which adds up to three different generations of Have You Heard listeners. A big thanks to the extended Miller family and Jack and I will be right back to wrap things up. So, Jack, it's no secret that Boston has a reputation as being, well, something of a racist hellhole. We got a vivid reminder of that recently when some high school students went to the Museum of Fine Arts for a field trip and got a lesson in racism that was both shocking and also pretty unsurprising.
1: As an MFA member, I can tell you that I received their email blast that racist incidents had occurred. But you know, to their credit, it seems like they did actually issue uh, cease and desist letters to the couple members who had behaved so badly towards the students of color had been who had been visiting that day.
0: The reason I raise that is because stories like what happened at the MFA can make it easy to miss just how diverse this area is. And I have a handy stat here from a new report. There are 147 cities and towns that researchers consider part of greater Boston. And between 1990 and 2017, every single one of them saw an increase in the percentage of people of color who live there. So my question for you, Jack, is whether this is showing up in our schools.
1: We've been working on a project for the last few months looking at racial integration in Massachusetts uh, and then across the large districts in Massachusetts. And what we're seeing is that the state of Massachusetts is becoming more racially diverse. Um, and that you know, if you define a racially diverse school in a particular kind of way, there are some more uh, racially integrated schools. But that no matter how you define it, uh, there is also a very sharp uptick in the number of highly segregated schools in Massachusetts. Uh, interestingly, within districts, we see that the large districts, somewhat not surprisingly, um have the highest levels of racial diversity and tend to have the greatest number of racially integrated schools. They also have the highest number of racially segregated schools. And so inside districts like Boston, Worcester, Springfield, we see that there are schools that meet even the strictest definitions of racial diversity, um, you know, places where there is no racial majority, uh, and we've done some data collection there where we've found that those actually tend to be the schools where students report feeling the safest, the most engaged. Um, they seem like really great schools. At the same time, within those same districts, we see some schools that are uh, you know, 100% non-white, 95% non-white, and many that are 90% non-white. And so what we're seeing is that as Massachusetts is gaining the demographic capacity for racially integrated schools across the state, particularly if there was a really thoughtful transportation plan, uh, and as we see districts gaining more and more capacity for racial diversity... Uh, for some different reasons, right? For an increasing number of white residents and middle-class residents uh, in city districts, um, that we are also seeing an uptick in the number of segregated schools. And so uh, racial integration is not something that is going to happen by happy accident, it seems. It is something that in some cases will happen because that's what people want, and in other cases will not happen without very intentional and thoughtful policymaking.
0: One of the questions that I put to Yahoo was whether he regards all of this as glass half full or glass half empty, that on the one hand, you have people of means returning to the city center, which means that in theory, at least, they can be powerful advocates for institutions like public schools and the students who are in them. But he's obviously also really wary that, you know, it doesn't take much. It can be just, you know, like a couple of lime green doors, some boxy architecture, and that weird sort of mid-century hotel furniture that everybody has now. And, you know, the next thing you know, you've reached a, a tipping point and you can end up with schools that where the well-resourced parents are really only pulling for the kids in them and not for everybody else.
1: One of the themes that has continued to come up across this episode is the fact that uh, there is this opportune moment right now in many cities, as well as in many suburbs, to actually promote School integration, whether we're talking about racial integration, economic integration, or both. Um, but that it is an opportunity that needs to be seized and which will slip away fairly quickly because neighborhoods transform pretty quickly. Um, we have seen uh, neighborhoods in Boston tip pretty quickly, uh, in Cambridge, in Somerville, uh, these gentrifying areas where an increasing no- number of middle-class and affluent white people have been attracted to neighborhoods, and in many cases, particularly attracted to neighborhoods where they feel like they can send their kids to the neighborhood public schools. Um, The trick then is to try to capitalize on this opportunity to integrate these folks into the schools uh, in these city school districts in a way that brings greater diversity and, in some sense, greater resources uh, to all of these schools without displacing the people who are already there and without uh, privileging this, uh, this new set of families uh, that is entering into these city districts.
0: Well, Jack, I would describe you as really glass half full there. <laughs>
1: Well, but before you say that, let me just add um, the the data are not glass half full right now. You know, I, I'm trying to encourage people uh, to take action on this, but um, let me end on a sour note and say that the number of highly segregated schools is uh, rapidly increasing.
0: Well, Jack, as our regular listeners know, we do a special premium feature called In the Weeds that is available to our Patreon subscribers, and you can join this elite group. All you have to do is go to patreon.com and search for Have You Heard? For a small monthly donation, you get all kinds of cool extras, including our In the Weeds feature. And I thought that given what we've been talking about today, that we should use our time in the weeds to talk about what is, for me, a really uncomfortable question. Is it time to break the connection between schools and neighborhoods once and for all?
1: Uh, Before we give up on anything, let me also tell people that they can support the show in other ways uh, rather than by opening their pocketbooks. They can just open their web browsers and go to wherever they get their podcasts, give us a rating throw us a few stars and of course uh, they can send a message to our Twitter handle at have you heard pod. We love hearing from you and uh, and whoever runs that Twitter handle uh, usually has some way of engaging back with you. So um, please be in touch that way. Uh, But yeah, I'm ready to go into the weeds. Anybody who has been lured over the paywall by the promise of uh, Jennifer uh, foregoing her optimistic look at uh, neighborhood community schools uh, may be interested in that.
0: And speaking of things to look forward to, oh, I should let listeners know that Jack is about to commence his regularly scheduled summer hiatus. And you know what that means when the cat's away.
1: Three episodes on neoliberal reform will be brought to you by Jennifer and no co-host, I'm sure. Uh, but when I return, we will be back to our uh, devotion to a critique of standardized test scores and an obsession with uh, school demography.
0: Until then, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard.